Hello, this is our lecture for the week of September 30th for History 110. And we are going to be talking about how the middle ground we've dealt with earlier has turns violent and into wars of empire. Um, these wars of empire, mainly the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution, concern one's, one group's quest to extinguish the other group's land claims. Now, there are three, at least three interrelated parts of this process, and we've talked about this before, so we'll go over it again. Um, Christianity is one part. The demand for land is another part. And politics is the third part. So to oversimplify, here's how these three things work. First, we'll start with politics. Because of the impact of disease and the declining profitability of trade, Indian diplomacy became less effective. The English political structure came to dominate, especially in the Northeast, and becoming part of the structure or an enemy to it hinged largely on whether or not you were a Christian. In the meantime, Indians continued practicing their own forms of diplomacy and politics and the traditional divisions in Indian societies between old and young or between war and peace leaders and between spiritual leaders and diplomats affected how individuals acted. We see this process very clearly in the film we saw on King Philip's War. The second factor is Christianity. In New England in particular, the... Uh, Puritan mentality led to a tendency to homogenize Christians and savages and polarize them. This had political and military ramifications because Indian converts became a political threat to non-converts. Um, and the English political system dictated that preferred allies would be Christians. The third factor here is the demand for land. The, the decreasing profitability of trade coincided with increasing demands for Indian land on which to settle and farm. Some Indian leaders began ceding land to the English in exchange for England's and the colony's recognition of their authority, which generated disputes within Indian groups and less effective resistance to British incursions. Even Christian Indians, whose land claims were at first more secure, suffered dramatic land loss as the English and colonial economic and military priorities outweighed their commitments to their alliances with Indians. Now, the predominance of trade as a way of relating um, between communities had certain outcomes for both groups. And again, I'm going to oversimplify here, but to give you an idea... For Indians, trading spreads disease, first and first of all. Um, when people come into contact with each other, infectious disease is spread more easily. People get sick, often die. Of course, as we've talked about, many Native peoples don't have um, genetic immunities to these diseases so or gen genetic ways to resist them. So um, when you come into contact with people who are carrying the disease, you're much more likely to get it. Um, the second outcome for Native communities is acquisitiveness. Native people had more interest, developed more interest in the value of goods and the concepts of profit and loss. The things that we talked about, for example, with the Apache, Navajo, Pueblo, and Spanish um, 
trade values, the trade values at the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara marketplace, um, the story of wampum and how wampum becomes valuable in the Northeast. These are all examples of how Native communities begin the trade relationship with Europeans with certain values in mind, namely um, the relative value of goods rather than an absolute idea of profit. But over time, acquisitiveness becomes the rule, and Native people begin to become more similar to Europeans in their attitudes about trade and about profit and loss. The third factor um, in the outcomes of trade for Native groups is how traders marry into tribes, um, and marriages create new kinds of alliances that both that benefit Native communities and benefit traders, um, and in some cases alter native social organization greatly and in other cases do not a uh, fourth outcome of trade for native people is how goods become um, goods come to replace skills so for example if you're buying copper pots or trading for copper pots there's less of a need over time to learn how to make pots, make clay pots. Um, same with metal tools. There's less of a need over time to learn how to make tools out of stone or bone or other materials. So there's a kind of loss of cultural knowledge that comes along with trade. At the same time as um, technology and someone's efficiency increases, knowledge is lost at the same time. Um, and that creates a kind of cycle of dependence on these goods from Europe that shift the balance of power in the favor of Europeans rather than Native people. Now, Europeans uh, experienced consequences from the trade with Native people as well. Um, not all were good and not all were bad. For example, buffalo leather. So when um, the Comanches and other tribes in the southwest and, and southern plains were fighting, were, sorry, hunting buffalo and trading the buffalo products for other goods from Europeans like guns and horses, Europeans took that buffalo leather and used it for machines in Europe. Um, it's the existence of buffalo leather leather that hastens the Industrial Revolution that brings it on much sooner probably than it would have come otherwise without leather to operate these um, pulleys and other wheels and so forth and the machinery you wouldn't have the rapid development of technology in Europe the way you see it um, Indian trade was also the basis of wealth for British and French nations. At, at first, of course, it was the basis of wealth for much of Spanish um, society as well, but gradually as the Spanish politically became weaker um, in North America, England and France began to rely on trade with Indians as a way of enhancing their wealth, which, of course, sometimes shifts balance of power to the hands of Indians. Um, as we saw in the King Philip's War film and in some other examples that we've looked at.
We also see how Indian cultures influence European culture, European lifestyles, European diplomatic goals, European economies. Uh, the marriage example of marriage is another good one where native women marrying European men had a heavy influence on the ways that Europeans conducted trade, conducted diplomacy, entered into political relationships with native people. Um, without those marriage relationships, the kind of colonial society that was developed in in North America would look very, very different. So we've talked some about Christianity and land, particularly as it relates to Indians in New England. Um, and today we're going to talk about politics <clears throat> and Indian political goals as uh, this period of the middle ground or diplomacy ultimately leads to a period of warfare between empires um, and between native um, native empires, native nations, and European nations. So Indians possessed typically three political goals. One was to preserve their land base. One was to preserve the trade with Europe, which, of course, had become very valuable. And another was to preserve their political autonomy. Preserving their land base involved um, the notion that tribal survival depended on the ability to control land. And this is true for tribes that depend on hunting, for true the tribes that depend on farming, gathering, fishing, other types of economic activities. Tribal survival depended on the ability to control land, and controlling land meant access to economic subsistence. The second uh, political goal for Indian communities was to preserve the trade. As I alluded to a minute ago, trade goods enhanced the standard of living and efficiency of work for many uh, Native people, and they wanted to preserve that improved standard of living by keeping access to trade goods open with Europeans. This became difficult at certain times depending on the kinds of goods that Europeans had access to or the ways in which Native people, what Native people were able to offer, and if those uh, goods were still desirable. The economic winds shift, and so do Indian. So does Indian power as it relates to trade. The third political goal for Native groups was to preserve political autonomy, or put another way, to preserve their political independence, the autonomy of leaders to make decisions that are best for their own people, not beholden to the desires or wishes of other tribes or of European powers. You see Massasoit, for example, consistently acting in a way that um, is autonomous. And then you see his son, Metacom or King Philip, struggling to act in a way that is autonomous because of the particular kinds of pressures on him from various English groups as well as various native groups that were different than the pressures his father faced. So during the 18th century, we have an increasing level of violence as well as infiltration of disease, the disruption of trade networks, and these events led to the perception that these three political goals were not being achieved. 
the uh, one of the first so-called imperial wars that we talk about in U.S. history is called Queen Anne's War, began in 1689 and took place mostly around the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes area. Um, it lasted with various interruptions until 1763. So that's um, quite a long period of warfare between Britain, France, and various native nations in North America. Now, these conflicts were overwhelmingly about French and British struggles for land in America. They were not frontier wars between settlers and Indians, um, though settlers and Indians were drawn into the conflict as allies serving in militia regiments or just sometimes ordinary citizens who wound up being casualties of war. Indians were participating in these wars based on the three political goals I outlined above. They were not tr trying to help the French or the British. They had their own goals and they made their alliances accordingly. Now, a loss of any of these things, of a land base, of trade, or of political autonomy, meant to Native peoples a loss of spiritual power. And that power had to be regained. Native leaders had different approaches to these issues, and those different approaches resulted in internal divisions. Native leaders had two ideas about how to recover power. One was held by a group we'll call the politicians, and another idea was held by the group we'll call the prophets. Now, in some tribes, talking about that, let's speak to the politicians first. In some tribes, um, particularly in the Ohio Valley, we've talked about inside chiefs and outside chiefs in the southwest. We've talked about this in the southeast as well. In some tribes, politics was already divided between peace chiefs and war chiefs, between inside chiefs and outside chiefs, which was a, a system designed to maintain harmony. And you'll remember from the very beginning of the semester, that the function of political, social, and religious systems in Native communities was to maintain harmony. So having one leader that deals with questions of diplomacy and another leader that deals with questions of war, one leader that deals with questions of trade, for example, another leader that deals with questions of um, of of war, of disruption of trade, meant that each side and each force was considered equally and valued equally in the community, and so harmony could be achieved and maintained if the political structure included ways of dealing with these divergent forces. The politicians, um, both peace chiefs and war chiefs, tended to have a kind of nationalistic approach to problem solving. They looked to the interests of their people in their village first. Um, they had to balance economic necessity with political autonomy, and so they tended to focus on preserving trade. The source of power for them is in an alliance with the traders, regardless of which tribe or which European empire those traders are coming from. The prophets, on the other hand, took a broader view than just their own particular nation or their home village. They tended to see strength and intertribal unity and cooperation, and their primary concern was the loss of spiritual power. They interpreted that loss to mean that the community had drifted away from responsibilities and that they needed to return to the ways that reinforced spiritual power. 
Now, both sides, the politicians and the prophets, agree that land, autonomy, and trade are the primary goals. Um, And for much of Native America in the 18th century, they also agreed that the Ohio River had to be the boundary of settlement by Europeans and that people could not, your settlers could not cross that boundary, that everything west of that boundary needed to be native land. Now, the Seven Years' War, which Jeffrey lectured about um, to a certain extent, emerged from French and British desires to control the Ohio Valley and the territory west of the Ohio River, the very place where Indians did not want them to go. The war was a growth of outgrowth of ongoing global hostilities between the French and the British. Each side wanted to dominate the eastern half of North America, and of course Indians had opinions about this too. While many of them had conceded that settlement would occur east of the Ohio River, settlement to the west had not been negotiated or authorized. But since the French and the British were trading partners and increasingly kin if they had married into various communities, Indian politicians had to preserve trade as well as preserve land. So instead of waging war on both the British and the French, Indians tended to choose sides depending on which European nation they wanted to counterbalance the power of the other. So, for example, you might choose the British side if you wanted the British to have control you might choose the French side if you wanted the French to have control over trade, um, and which side you wanted depended on your own political circumstances, who was offering you the best trade goods, which um, nation more of your people had married into, who you had stronger historical alliances with, etc. So as long as two European nations were present on the continent, Indian politicians could play one side against the other. This is called playoff diplomacy, where Indian leaders would seek to destabilize European powers. Now, when the French began to construct forts in the Ohio Valley in 1753, the British tried to drive them out. Each side solicited Indian allies And while the French defeated the British at first, the British rallied and in 1758 signed the Treaty of Easton with some of France's Indian allies in the Ohio Valley. The treaty tried to make peace with France's Indian allies. Indians promised to withdraw from the conflict in exchange for Britain's promises that their lands would be protected from colonial settlement and that the British would provide all the trade goods Indians wanted. Now, like I said, Indians' goals were to maintain their autonomy, their lands, and their access to trade goods. So this alliance with the British made sense. Indians' peace with the British allowed the British to to corner the French at Fort Duquesne in in Ohio, and the French had to retreat. In 1759, the British captured Quebec, Fort Niagara, and they controlled the seas, the Atlantic, which cut off trade France's trade routes along the Mississippi River. Now, France's remaining Indian alliances fell apart after 1759. Um, But, unfortunately, this 
The victory of the British left Indians in somewhat of a pickle. Even the ones that had allied with the British didn't necessarily think this through or see this coming, that while Indians didn't want the French on their lands, they did want someone to counterbalance British power. And after Britain won, there was nobody to to counterbalance British power. So if the British began abusing the terms of the Treaty of Easton, which they quickly did, um, there was really nothing, <clears throat> nothing that Native people could do about it because there was no other um, European power to appeal to to force Britain's hand. Now, there were still attempts to fight back, essentially, to resist British incursion and abuses of the promises they made. And Britain did attempt to, rather the British crown, I should say, attempted to follow through on some of those promises. The first and most important promise um, made at the Treaty of Easton was the Proclamation of 1763, which is also known as the Proclamation Boundary Line. This proclamation of 1763 does three things. It established a regulated trade under British royal authority. In other words, the colonies could not control trade with Indians, but the British crown controlled trade. It centralized the trade so it was accountable to London. The second thing the proclamation did was to establish a boundary line between British America and Indian America. East of the line is where English can settle but they're not supposed to go west of that line. Third, the line, the proclamation established a governance system for Indian relations that centered power in the hands of the crown and recognized the sovereignty or or autonomy of Indian tribes west of that proclamation line. Now, the way this um, governance system worked was that there was what the British called a southern superintendency and a northern superintendency. So essentially there's a central office, two central offices, one located in the south and one located in the north, uh, that were run by two British men. Each man was married to an Indian woman, which bound them to native tribes through kinship ties. And they also this, these marriages also assured the crown that their diplomats had access to native politics. Now, the Proclamation of 1763 was designed to promote peaceful relations so that the English expansion could occur in an orderly way and that land exchanges, if necessary, could be conducted without violence. Uh, In other words, I don't want to give you the impression that with the Proclamation of 1763, England was saying, oh, wait, hold up, we're going to just halt settlement right here, we're not going to go any further, Um, we're going to, you know, quit trying to colonize North America. That wasn't what England was saying. What they were saying was, here's a policy and here's a way to regulate trade and land exchange so that it can, can, it can occur peacefully with minimal loss of life on both sides and um, so that our, our alliances are, you know, what they considered their very valuable alliances with Native peoples could be preserved. Now, Indians' response to um, the proclamation at first was was um, positive. They were much more interested in preserving a fair and regulated trade than they were in waging war. <clears throat> but 
having had the experience of um, understanding how militarily powerful they could be, Indians would resort to aggression when it seemed that their imperial ally had selfishly violated the agreement that the ally had made. So, for example, after 1762, a Delaware leader named Tamakwa, T-A-M-A-Q-U-A, had pursued a policy of accommodating British interests. Um, Tamakwa's policy even encouraged Indians to provision British forts with food and supplies, which was a creative way for Indians to profit from garrisons that they otherwise considered intrusive. And after 1758, the British adopted a conciliary tone for a few years, but gradually their forces in the region became self-sufficient and colonists' expansionist pressures became more acute. So the British army didn't need Indians to supply their forts, and also the British army became less and less willing to control the actions of settlers who wanted to live on Indian land that had not been exchanged. Uh, furthermore, the British ignored the stipulations that they had laid out in the Treaty of Easton. New trade regulations were passed, and the customary practice of gift-giving, of exchanging gifts as a way of, of sealing friendships, stopped. This provoked anger in some quarters, and Tamakwa's influence began to decline because Indians perceived that they had they were losing their spiritual power by pursuing Tamakwa's di- diplomatic policy to accommodate the British. Some new leaders um, emerged to promote a different path to regaining Indians' power in the region and to preserving their autonomy. One such leader was Neolin, N-E-O-L-I-N, a prophet from the Delaware community. And Neolin's voice, voice to return to spiritual power through rejecting um, alliance with the British led to the infamous Pontiac conspiracy, which was not in fact a conspiracy led by one man, but a series of local conflicts inspired by particular circumstances and given purpose by Indians' desire to replace the British and bring back the French-controlled trade. So again, it wasn't that Naolan wanted to get rid of the trade. It was that he wanted to bring the French back into the picture because Britain was not doing what it said it was going to do. Now, ultimately, in these conflicts, France decided not to get involved, and um, British troops did secure some sort of hollow victories on the battlefield in these various skirmishes. But the real defeat of Pontiac's conspiracy came when Britain conducted germ warfare on Indians by sending smallpox-infected blankets to native villages in what is now Michigan and Ohio. So a stalemate in 1764 halted the fighting that's we now think of as Pontiac's conspiracy. But British troops maintained their presence in the Ohio Valley, and Indian communities began to slowly move westward and cluster together. Now, um, 
colonials had their own reactions to the proclamation of 1763. The British crown came up with this policy, which was in the crown's interest, but it didn't seem to consult settlers who were in fact very upset by this idea. Um, the proclamation of 1763 collided with colonial interests, which tended to be expansionist and they did not want to regulate the trade. Traders wanted more independence than the British crown was willing to allow them. Ultimately, the proclamation denied land speculators the opportunity to buy and sell Indian lands, which limited the wealth that that individuals and colonial governments could acquire through expansion and unregulated trade. This was one of the ways in which colonials were unhappy with the proclamation of 1763. The point here, as we lead up to that, we we discuss the time period between 1763 and 1776. The point here is how the American Revolution is as much about territorial expansion as it was about freedom from British rule. Now, when the British negotiated with Indian interests in mind, for example, when they created the Proclamation of 1763, the British were protecting Indian land. Americans wanted to live on that Indian land. So this creates um, a real conflict between uh, colonists, people who lived in the colonies, had been settling um, North America for some time, and the British crown, which had a very different idea about what its interests were. In the years leading up to the American Revolution, the system of playoff diplomacy that I talked about before resumes because um, the crown is one type of power and the colonies are a different type of power. So Native people are able to take advantage of the conflicting interests of crown and colony to obtain uh, – to preserve their political goals, preserving land, preserving trade, and preserving political autonomy. Now, for the most part, um, British diplomats managed to convince the tribes that the British crown had their best interests at heart, and they shored up alliances for their conflict with the colonies. This is why you see so many Native communities allying with the British during the American Revolution instead of um, the Americans because many most native people agreed with the british that the crown's interests were more uh coincided with their own coincided with their own better than the colony's interests a war that immediately preceded the american revolution which do, but which doesn't get much coverage is a good example of indians roles in this conflict between the crown and the colonies it's called Lord Dunmore's War. Um, Dunmore is D-U-N-M-O-R-E. Now, for many, many years, since the Seven Years' War and probably before that, plantation owners in Virginia had been speculating on land in the Ohio Valley. They had been buying up tracts of land that did not own, belong to them, belong to native peoples and then reselling that land to other settlers some some of whom would go live there but some of whom were just simply investing they believed in 
and parcels of land that they thought Britain would eventually own if they didn't own it already. Um, and so this land speculation activity made people like George Washington extremely wealthy um, in addition to his plantation properties in Virginia. He was a very well-known land speculator who became involved in that through his um, military service in the Seven Years' War. Um, now, the colony of Virginia began to see that the British crown's interests were conflicting with their own, um, and they wanted to assume control over this land that many of their citizens had bought and sold over the previous decades. And they began to encroach on the Ohio Valley to wage war, essentially, on that territory under the leadership of their royal lieutenant governor, Lord Dunmore. In 1774, Virginia's militia seized Fort Pitt, what's now Pittsburgh, um, a formerly British garrison that had prevented colonists from crossing the 1763 proclamation line. Two parties of Virginians launched Dunmore's War by attacking Iroquois and Shawnee warriors, as well as Pennsylvania traders at Fort Pitt. Ohio's Indians, the Indians in the Ohio Valley, didn't have enough of a consensus to mount an uprising against Virginia militia, um, and were not particularly militarily effective in driving Virginia back to its its home area. And Dunmore, Lord Dunmore, consisted, insisted on proceeding to try to exert absolute control of the Ohio region. And so he sent more and more troops on these campaigns against the Shawnee and against the Iroquois, who were fighting to protect that territory. Dunmore's forces advanced west to the Ohio River, and eventually they negotiated a truce with the Shawnees, who agreed to remain north of the Ohio River and but give up the southern valley to settlers. After this agreement, colonists no longer perceived that Indians were an obstacle to expansion. And interestingly, a year later, 1775, Lord Dunmore was driven into exile by his own forces, the American patriots who were bent on independence and territorial expansion. So once Indians became... Um, once Indians were removed as an obstacle from American expansion, then the British crown became the main obstacle to American expansion and what we now think of as American independence. This forces, of course, led to the American Revolution and the um, possibility of the existence of the United States and, of course, what we discover later to be the persistent desire for expansion of United States territory across Indian land. Those dynamics were set up in historical examples like Lord Dunmore's War, where the notion of independence, of freedom, became equated with the desire to live wherever one pleased, regardless of who actually lived there already. Um, and Indians, of course, were 
a key factor in determining the course of this history, not just because they lived on the land that American settlers wanted, but because they had their own political and military goals that they were trying to exert as Americans pursued this process of expansion. Now, in the American Revolution, both the British and the Americans recognized that their military success depended on Indians and alliances with Indians. This was no different than what the British and French were dealing with in the Seven Years' War. Both of them needed Indian allies in order to win. Um, and they needed these Indian allies because the outcome of the war would be control of land in which Indians lived. So there were essentially... Um, three theaters of war that were heavily focused on um, warfare between native people and um, colonists and native people and British forces. The Ohio Valley was one theater, the Mohawk River Valley was another theater, and western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee was a third theater. So I want to talk first about the Ohio Valley. Um, the violations of the 1863 proclamation were most intense here. The settler population of Fort Pitt, for example, was 5,000 by 1760, which was in direct violation of the Treaty of Easton. The fort under that treaty was supposed to re remain a military garrison only. But Virginia, as I said before, had been encouraging its settlers to move into Kentucky, and Fort Pitt was a major stopover place and also a place where people came to live. The British saw that they could use this situation to their advantage, and um, they tried to preserve their trade relationships with Indians to gain Indian alliances against the Virginia colony. Um, the Virginia colony, this led directly into this, this conflict played a direct role in the American Revolution because the Virginia colony understood that in order to break the British and Indian alliance, they had to break the trade. So what they did was they cut off Indian access to goods below the Ohio Valley, and they signed a treaty with Delaware Indians in 1778 that promised to provide goods in exchange for the Delaware's uh, refusal to invade Philadelphia. So Delaware's, of course, in their alliance with the British, had said, look, we'll invade Philadelphia if you guys don't stop. Amer if you guys, Americans, don't stop coming over here and trying to tell us what to do and cut off our trade. And America said, well, okay, let's, let's make another agreement. You know, If you won't attack Philadelphia, then we will provide you with all the trade goods that you need and you won't have to worry about the British. To the Delaware's, I guess this sounded like a pretty good idea. So they went through with it. But the Americans wound up turning against the Delawares, and they killed the chief that had signed the treaty. Um, not long after it was signed, they killed the chief in 1778, the same year that the treaty was signed. By 1781, the, the Continental Army had massacred a village of Delaware converts, of converts to Christianity, um, and were living at a Moravian mission. So these actions, um, America basically going back on its treaty, 1778 treaty agreement with the Delaware, drove the Delawares into an, a new alliance with the British. Um, and the Delawares, combined with the British, defeated Daniel Boone and the Kentucky militia 
at the Battle of Blue Licks in 1782. So uh, even sort of an expansionist figure like Daniel Boone was heavily affected by the particular political priorities of Native people. So although their property had been destroyed, Native people did not consider themselves beaten or exiled or subject to the United States. But instead, after this conflict was over, they returned to their build their villages in the Ohio Valley area, and these tribes remained committed to autonomy, land, and trade, and they continued to make alliances accordingly. A second theater uh, of importance in the American Revolution was the Mohawk River Valley. Most Indians in New England supported the, the Continental Army rather than the British because by now colonists were their neighbors. Of course, it was in their best interest to ally with the people who they had the most day-to-day -day dealings with. Uh, for example, warriors from the mission town of Stockbridge in western Massachusetts joined George Washington's army in, his, in the siege of Boston in 1775. Now, while these uh, Stockbridge Indians were away fighting, their American neighbors took over their lands um, and possessed, took possession of houses and fields and other uh, property by Native people. Sometimes Indians would attack the colonists when they approached on their lands, uh, for example, dealing with the Iroquois or Six Nations in New York. Um, the proclamation of 1763 ran, the line ran through the Six Nations territory. So Mohawks that had been in the east moved west of that line, expecting, of course, that um, settlement would stay east of the line. Colonists Tend to move, tended to move west of the line because they needed more land to farm wheat for the Continental Army to supply the army. And Mohawks responded by attacking them when they moved west of the line. Now, again, this was a line that the British had set, not that the Americans had set. So American settlers saw no reason why they should honor that agreement if they weren't getting along with the British. Mohawks, on the other hand, said, well, you know, your royal government set this line. You have to abide by the rules of that line, and we're going to attack you if you don't. Now, when Mohawks attacked farmers who moved across the proclamation line, it meant that the army had less food because Mohawks had run farmers out of the territory. The farmers were not able to grow the wheat that the army needed. And in 1779, the Continental Army responded by burning 40 Mohawk villages, cutting down orchards, and destroying Mohawk crops. This was a very effective uh, way to defeat Mohawk attempts to control settlement in their territory, and Indians pulled back as the army advanced and eventually returned to find nothing of their homes and no food of any kind to sustain themselves through the, through, through the winter. They then, uh, Mohawks then turned to an alliance with the British at Fort Niagara to maintain some kind of sense of autonomy 
after Americans had destroyed their villages. The third theater of war that we're going to talk about is Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. Now, the British Southern Superintendency wanted to use the tribes in the South as allies against the American Rebellion, but they felt that Indians should hold off on attacking the colonial army until the, the, until the British invaded that territory in the late 1770s. The Cherokees didn't want to wait because settlers were violating the proclamation line steadily, but they agreed to accommodate um, the interests of the British crown and so waited to attack. In 1775, several Cherokee chiefs, including one named Little Carpenter, tried to buy more time for the British by ceding land to North Carolina to become a buffer zone between American settlement and Cherokee villages. At the negotiations, Little Carpenter's son, a man named Dragon Canoe, objected strongly. Uh, because he believed that his father was breaking Cherokee law and ceding land to the colony of North Carolina. And indeed, Little Carpenter was breaking Cherokee law, and the result was that settlers began filling up the ceded territory. Rather than being a buffer, as Little Carpenter had intended, that ceded territory simply became more land open to American settlement. Dragon Canoe formed his own military faction, and in 1776 attacked two North Carolina forts. Now, he's attacking the Americans here, the Continental Army, not the British. Um, The British had asked, of course, the Cherokees to wait to attack the Americans, but Dragon Canoe would not wait once he saw that American settlers were violating um, the treaty agreement that his father had made. Now, in this action, Dragon Canoe was not trying to be an ally of the British. He was not fighting on behalf of the British, even though his military action might have benefited the British. But he was defending his own interests. In response, um, Americans, the Continental Army, burned 30 Cherokee towns, destroying orchards and crops the same way they had with the Mohawks. And Dragon Canoe and his followers retreated to the southwestern part of the Cherokee Territory, where they built new towns and became known as the Chickamaugas. Chickamaugas is spelled C-H-I-C-K-A-M-A-U-G-A-S, because they lived on the Chickamauga River. There they continued to resist the Continental Army and American expansion while Little Carpenter and the other chiefs who sided with him stayed in the Cherokee homeland but had very little bargaining power when America won the war. So the American Revolution was ended with the Treaty of Paris, signed in 1783. The treaty established the boundaries of U.S. territory. Um, It established United States independence on Indian land. There was actually no reference made to Britain's Indian allies in the treaty and what was supposed to become of them. The problem was the United States didn't see these tribes as autonomous nations but as conquered peoples because they had allied with the British. So the United States essentially said, if you were Britain's ally, uh, we defeated you along with the British, and so we have 
the right to do as we please with your land, your resources, because you're a conquered people. England recognized America's right of conquest to all the land within the established boundaries, and America recognized itself based on the right of conquest. This is present in the language of the treaty. It makes sense that Indians weren't mentioned in the treaty because they were not Christians, and as you remember, according to the right of conquest, um, non-Christians have no rights other than a right of occupation to their land. Christians are the only ones who can control, occupy, control and occupy land in any kind of political or governance way. So by virtue of European international law, uh, Native peoples as non-Christians had no rights following the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Now Indians, of course, had different ideas. Their opposition to American expansion was based on their own political interests, not just Britain's political interests. Um, And Indians reacted to Americans' approach to the right of conquest along the lines of the divisions we talked about previously, prophets believing one thing and politicians believing a different thing. And conflict with the United States continues for another 30 or 40 years easily in the East and for quite a bit longer, of course, in the West. So we will talk about this um, next time.